You know, I didn't get hacked by China. American businesses got hacked by China. It is the week of July 26th, and welcome to episode 90 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Mike Gottlieb, NSI Visiting Fellow and former Special Assistant to President Obama, first-time guest Fred Turner, former Chief of Staff to Bob Menendez, and first-time guest Carrie Filippetti, Executive Director of the Vandenberg Coalition and former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Cuba and Venezuela in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs and the Deputy Special Representative for Venezuela at the U.S. State Department. And I'm Grant Haver, an SI Policy Program Manager. So our first topic this week is the protests and reaction to the protests in Cuba. Uh, These protests have been going on for several weeks. They are massive. They're in multiple Cuban cities. They've started, at least in part, in reaction to the Cuban government's very poor handling of the coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, the terrible economic conditions on the island, the bad human rights situation. Uh, A lot of artists have been leaders of these protests. These protests have been enabled by uh, the fact that the Cuban people have at least for a while had access to social media and therefore have been able to organize themselves to express their views directly to their government, which was not elected in any sense of the word and is, uh, uh, by most accounts, one of the most repressive on earth. Fred, Welcome to the podcast. We're thrilled to have you here. Your old boss on Capitol Hill, Senator Menendez, one of the toughest critics of the regime in Cuba. I'd just love to hear your reaction to what we're seeing on the island right now. Thanks, Les. It's uh, good to be with you all. And look, it it is in the recent history of Cuba, this is unprecedented. We have not seen... Uh, mass gatherings of this type uh, truly in the last 60 plus years. Uh, What you're seeing is a population that has been repressed for generations. uh, And unlike some other populations uh, that unfortunately have to live under the thumb of authoritarian regimes around the world, the regime in Havana seems to be doing less of a good job keeping their population fed and uh, housed in adequate sanitary conditions. And when you have uh, people who are hungry and uh, people who are not uh, clothed or lodged properly, you are going to see exactly what uh, you saw within the past several weeks uh, not just on the streets of uh, Havana, but across uh, across the island, uh, hundreds of thousands of people wanting change, which they which they so deserve. You know, the Cuban uh, government, the regime there, uh, has been in power as this group knows for more than sixty years, spanning more than twelve U.S. administrations. By the way. Uh, So to think there is a silver bullet here, that there's an easy solution, there is not. Uh, If there was one, then uh, one of these last 12 administrations probably would have figured it out. Uh, We have been having trouble uh, trying to get U.S. foreign policy correct in this hemisphere, going back at least uh, to the Monroe Doctrine. Um, and it is not a partisan issue. Uh, it is something that the United States has been grappling with for literally a couple hundred years. Harry Filippetti, uh, you're also uh, very welcome here on Fault Lines. Thanks for being with us this week. First time uh, commentator. You played a pretty critical role on Cuba policy in the last administration. Uh, I'd love to get your take on the situation with Cuba right now, including your assessment of the Biden administration's response so far. And I'll just note that, uh, at least to my surprise a little bit, uh, President Biden announced new sanctions on Cuba against uh, government officials and those who are actually carrying out the arrests of protesters. So I'd love, love to hear from you on this topic. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much. It's it's wonderful to be with you all. Um, you know, I think 
first of all, most of Biden's Cuba team were the same people that I had an opportunity to work with in the previous administration. And we're talking about some of the most thoughtful, intelligent and creative foreign and civil service officers that really we really have at the State Department. Um, and so these were the men and women who, when the San Isidro movement really started to kick up in 2018, really noted that we need to be paying attention to what they're doing. This is very different from things that had happened in the past. And so starting from that point, I kind of had my spidey senses on that at some point, this may turn into something much more significant than what we've seen within the Cuba context over the past 60 years. And so I think, you know, having watched that movement closely, seeing that this is now being fomented by artists and musicians and rappers and things like that, um, we really did think that something could change uh, within the Cuba context. So I'm really grateful to see that the Cuban people are, are coming out onto the street and actually just outside my office, I saw a number of Cuban protesters today. So, um, so they're all out and about, you know, demanding their freedom. Um, I do think it's worth noting that the sanctions announced under the global Magnitsky authorities um, just last week is not actually entirely new sanctions. Um, so on January 15th, one of the last things that we did in the previous administration was we announced the first set of global Magnitsky sanctions within Cuba on the Minister of the Interior and the Ministry of the Interior as a whole. And so those authorities enabled us to then designate the sub-entities within uh, the Ministry of the Interior. And so in some senses, this is a naming of entities that have already been sanctioned. But to be perfectly fair um, to both the Democrats and the Republicans, almost all Cuban officials are already designated under blanket sanctions that have been in place for decades. So a lot of this is just political maneuvering, but at the same time, it is still really critically important messaging. I think what's most useful for using the GLOMAG designation is that this may compel Europeans to start looking into human rights violations by the Cuban regime. And then if they do it, then I think that would be really significant momentum. And I'm sure that the, um, that the uh, current administration is, is looking at doing that. Um, lastly, just to your point about this being a surprise, I think the Cuba issue obviously has considerable domestic implications. And so when President Biden lost Florida, I think there were there was a bit of speculation about the fact that he may be constrained in going back to an Obama era doctrine when it came to either Cuba or Venezuela policy. And I think that's being proven true. Of course, it's especially helpful that we have a bipartisan consensus in some ways, you know, Senator Menendez being one of the leading voices on this issue, along with Republican senators. And so I think that makes sure that we're going to have um, a strong and aggressive policy going forward that puts human rights at the, at the forefront of our Cuba policy. Michael, I want to kind of turn to that bipartisanship question. Can I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot and ask you to talk about uh, the Democratic Party and its position on, on Cuba. My Republican spidey sense detects a certain amount of dissonance among Democrats, whether to blame the regime in Havana, whether to blame the U.S. sanctions regime in general for the situation on the island or some combination thereof. Can, can you talk about the position of the party vis-a-vis what the Biden administration is doing? Is President Biden going a little too far for some Democrats here? Only if you promise me that the Green Lantern or some other Marvel superhero will show up to aid us in our discussion. Um, so, look, I don't actually think you need a Spidey sense or a Superman cape or a, uh, any other superpower to uh, to notice that there is a difference in approach in the Democratic Party. Um, I think that the, the dominant elements of the Democratic Party, given that Joe Biden is president, have made that division largely inconsequential um, in the sense that the Biden administration is essentially holding firm on the sanctions a policy that has been in place for some time now. You already are. You all already discussed the new sanctions that came down last week. Um, the the administration made a pretty strong statement criticizing the repression of the authoritarian regime, and you know, and the president has called Cuba a failed state and said communism is a failed system. So it's a fairly it's a fairly um, con, you know, consistent policy um, with what we saw out of the prior. Administration. On the other hand, um, you do have Representative Ocasio-Cortez coupling support for the protesters with a call to eliminate the sanctions regime, calling the sanctions regime cruelty. And that's sort of consistent with her general worldview and and others who support her, um, that sanctions don't tend to produce regime change that we hope for, that it causes significant humanitarian harm. 
Um, but that that line is directly contrary with the, the line that we hear coming out of the administration, including from Secretary of State Blinken, who has said, you know, has, has responded fairly forcefully to some of the comments coming out of the Cuban regime, saying that sanctions are the cause of the misery of the, and suffering of the, of the Cuban people. And then meanwhile, to further complicate it, you've got the Democrats in Florida who, of course, you know, are, are watching this political trend in the state and, and worried that, it's, that the state is going to kind of turn uh, if it's not red already, it's going to kind of continue to shift from purple to red, uh, who are really trying to create space between themselves and AOC um, in taking a harder line on on the Cuban regime. So, so yes, I do think there is a split uh, in the party. I do think that um, uh, it turns on uh, fundamentally on a difference of opinion with respect to the efficacy of a sanctions regime. Uh, that's been in place for some time now and how and the sort of humanitarian consequences of that. I'm not sure that um, that split is going to be all that consequential at the end of the day uh, for anything other than these political considerations, because as a policy matter, I don't think the president is likely to um, to change uh, the administration's policy based on those views. If I could just say bridging what what Carrie and Michael just said, which I think they're consistent and complementary with one another, the sanctions would, uh, U.S. sanctions would be a more effective tool if we were joined by some of our Euro- European colleagues in um, uh, in imposing those same types of regimes. When the U.S. led by authoring the very first Magnitsky Act, what made Magnitsky and and subsequently global Magnitsky even more significant was that we saw our colleagues in Canada and in London and in Brussels and in many other countries, in, you know, basically take our law and duplicate it to their system. If the same type of duplication would happen now, the likelihood that our sanctions would have the intended effect on Havana would go up. Kerry, I want to turn a little bit to the question of social media and the internet. You know, I think folks in the last few years have mostly gotten the impression that uh, the internet and social media can actually be a tool used by authoritarian governments to control their population, to suppress dissent, uh, to kind of control the opinions and the actions of their of their captive populations. But here in Cuba, we're seeing exactly the opposite. Social media has unleashed uh, what, 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 what I think most of us would say is are the true feelings and views of the Cuban people. They're not interested in this ham-handed authoritarian government controlling their lives anymore. They want to. They, they're, they seem to be yearning for freedom. Uh, Americans uh, instinctively like that kind of thing. I think appropriately so. Can you talk about how our government entities, and whether it's at state or elsewhere, should be thinking more creatively about using social media to help? Uh, folks in Cuba and elsewhere who are who are suffering under authoritarian regimes? Well, Lister, creativity is absolutely the word. And when I think about the calls to advance and modernize a U.S. military, which I support, I also think we need to be talking about advancing and modernizing our diplomatic corps. And that really starts with our efforts towards public diplomacy, as well as really recognizing the um, the challenge of the internet, because whether we're talking about a geopolitical context or even an individual context, the internet really is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it does allow for freedom of speech and for more people to get their message across. On the other hand, it is a valuable tool for authoritarian governments to surveil um, and eventually detain uh, or or kill those who are promoting dissident views. Um, So, you know, I think what we can try to do is what we've done in other contexts. So, for example, Um, looking at supporting Iranian protests, looking at supporting protests in Venezuela. We've often used VPNs in order to authorize the citizens to be able to access the internet without being worried about surveillance from the government. Um, We can also connect this to the ability to get more money into the hands of the Cuban people, because when you talk about remittances and the, you know, sending of money to citizens inside Cuba from the United States, 
one of the things that the Trump administration cut off was the ability to go through Fincimex, which is a government-controlled entity, because it would take 10% of all of those remittances to, to funnel money into the regime. What we can do is use a combination of VPNs plus digital wallets, which is what was done in the Venezuela context, in order to help ensure that that money is getting directly into the hands of the Cuban people. But again, in order to do that, there needs to be internet access that's available outside of government control. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is the Chinese um, really using a lot of their systems and giving them to the, the Cubans, to the Venezuelans, in order to provide that surveillance. So I know we'll get into this um, into uh, the next segment of these, as we talk more about China, but Chinese surveillance support really shows that part of what we're talking about here does fall within the broader great power competition that's going on uh, within the Western Hemisphere. Michael, Fred, I'd love uh, for either one of you to weigh in here and, and, and give us your thoughts on whether the Biden administration is going to take advantage of that kind of opportunity. Well, I, I certainly hope they uh, will. It's easier said than done, uh, for sure. Uh, again, as I said a few minutes ago, um, if it was easy, it would have been done already. Um, and, and so I think Kerry is absolutely right. Uh, we see the influence of China and Russia, not just in the Western Hemisphere, but in Africa, we go around the globe. And it's, you know, it's easier when you're an authoritarian state to act with dispatch, uh, whether you're in Havana or Beijing or Moscow. Um, it's, you know, it's more complicated when you have, uh, uh, when you have a, a popularly elected president and actually a Congress that reflects the will of the people that may take different views. And so it, it, it is definitely more difficult. Um, so I think right now, Les, as you already pointed out, the Biden administration, I don't think uh, has done anything different, frankly, than what the last administration would have done in the same situation. And some of the other possibilities that you alluded to at the kickoff here uh, are, are challenging. Uh, Kerry mentioned uh, getting money directly to the Cuban people through remittances. Well, you know, uh, the Cuban government takes a significant cut of those. Uh, we wouldn't permit that in other countries, and yet we have that here. You know, when the, some on the left uh, of the Democratic Party say we should end sanctions, lift the embargo, et cetera, and let the Cuban people thrive, you know, it shows a fundamental misunderstanding of the Cuban system, where you essentially have two entities on the entire island. You have, you have the military and you, you have uh, GAESA, which uh, is a, a essentially controls all commerce and industry that is not the military. Uh, I mean, from restaurants to hotels to you name it. When United Airlines flew into Havana, they didn't get to hire the baggage handlers, the gate workers, etc. The Cuban regime hired those people for them. So again, it's difficult to, you know, to take what we all consider ideas that just make sense here in Washington or other places and apply them to the regime in Havana. Grant, I'm throwing it over to you for the next topic. Great. So last week, the Biden administration attributed the Microsoft Exchange hack to China. Uh, we spoke about this hack last week on the show with Dmitry Alperovich, um, but we thought it was significant enough to continue the conversation here. Mike, you suggested that we sort of continue the conversation. What stood out to you about this hack? And do you think the Bi what do you think the Biden administration will actually do about it? So, I mean, this was a sophisticated, long-running operation by China's MSS, its Ministry of State Security, uh, that we learned about some months ago. And, you know, they were working through contractors who indiscriminately were attacking Microsoft Exchange servers by exploiting zero-day vulnerabilities that they were manipulating um, to break into any non-patch servers that were Internet accessible. Um and something like 250,000 servers were affected and 30,000 compromised. So this is a big deal. And then I think what rattled a lot of people watching this was that just as Microsoft was about to put a patch out, the hackers began sort of feverishly scanning the Internet to find any vulnerable remaining service, uh, servers to maximize the, the size and the scope of the damage done. 
and there's been a ton of ransom uh, ransom data in the aftermath. So, you know, a lot of discussion is happening now about whether this is better or worse than the SolarWinds hack. Less, I know you and, and Dimitri talked about that on last week's pod, and uh, we don't need to revisit that discussion necessarily. But, you know, in SolarWinds, you're talking about a, a supply chain attack on um, 18,000 customers of system, systems that allowed the hackers to reach into government agencies and large enterprises throughout the United States. Um, this is a little different in its sort of indiscriminate um, meandering uh, attacks across uh, the internet, uh, allowing the hackers to reach this huge number uh, of businesses and a, a ton of information in terms of emails and data attached to them. Um, so, so look, I mean, what is the administration going to do? So far, um, the administration has relied on trying to marshal the international community for the attribution step, which is a critically important step, uh, but it really remains unclear what's going to happen next. The attribution uh, uh, which uh, statement, which happened last week, uh, was, was a big deal in this area because it, in, it, it involved a bunch of nations that typically have been really reluctant to openly criticize Beijing. Uh, along with us, you had Australia, you had Britain, Canada, the EU, NATO allies, Japan, New Zealand. So that, that was a big deal. The question is what comes out of that? Um, a couple of days ago, there was a Bloomberg article reporting uh, on some uh, background statements from administration officials about the Biden administration's plan with respect to sanctions. And that the administration appears to try, to, uh, if, if these are uh, accurate statements, appears to try to be distancing themselves from taking on any unilateral sanctions in, uh, in the near term, uh, essentially making the argument that, look, uh, if we do sanctions unilaterally on some of these Chinese officials, it's not going to accomplish anything. They don't have property here. They don't use the banking system. They don't travel here. Um, we can't really reach them. Um, and uh, the statement in this Bloomberg piece was essentially from these administration's officials that sanctions wouldn't be as effective as other approaches in deterring future cyber attacks. So the question remains, what are those efforts to deter cyber attacks going to be? Um, either it's going to be some type of coordinated international response, whether that's um, some type of, of action uh, looking like sanctions in the future, which seems unlikely to me. Or maybe we may see um, indictments coming uh, in the months ahead. Um, on the same day as the attribution statement last week, DOJ indicted four Chinese nationals for separate um, uh, hacking intrusions dating back something like 10 years, and three of the four were described as MSS officers. So it's not out of the question that we might see uh, DOJ coming forward with uh, you know, indictments down the road like that in the future. But uh, for now, it's, it's unclear what the administration's next steps, if any, are going to be in responding to this. So last year, we're a little more skeptical that that this was going to have a major impact long-term on U.S.-China relations. Do you think that's because the, the hack itself wasn't that important and we'll forget about it in a year? Or do you think it's because the Biden administration has an unclear approach to this problem? Well, Grant, if you're talking about my interview with Dimitri, I just like to be skeptical of Dimitri because I think it provokes him to say something, you know, a little bit more interesting. I, I do think uh, we don't know the whole story on on the hack and the U.S. response, there's there's always a certain amount of activity kind of below the, the grade on, in the classified zone. So I don't want to be too judgmental here about the administration response. I do think it's good that we lined up uh, like-minded nations to be critical along with us of what China has done. If that's paving the way towards multilateral sanctions, I think that's a very good thing. I do think unilateral sanctions are substantially less effective than multilateral. I think we've learned that. We learned that in Cuba for the last three generations. Uh, we lo- we've learned that in other areas uh, during the last administration, as much as I liked some of the, uh, the instincts of the administration in certain sanctions policy of, the, of uh, the Trump administration, they were not as effective as, not nearly as effective as they would have been had that administration made more of an effort to bring our allies along for the ride. I like that the Biden administration is doing that. I'm willing to give them a lot more uh, road to go down before they actually have to implement those because there's some, some work that needs to be done with the low hanging fruit here. Uh, I do think it's also critical that the corporate community kind of stand up and realize that this market that they're all very interested in exploiting is uh, very much a minefield for them, specifically for them. Uh, you know, I didn't get hacked by China. American businesses got hacked by China. Uh, they they need to be very uh, uh, kind of 
hard-eyed about their approach to the biggest country in the world and its authoritarian government. And I think our corporate citizens have an obligation to be more uh, judicious in the way they handle their own security matters and also to uh, understand that a tougher line is necessary in a lot of instances in our dealings with China. So I I think one of the things that should come out of this is a call on corporate America to be better citizens and to be more supportive of administrations, uh, this administration's and future administration's initiatives to limit the damage of the Chinese government. So let's just uh, so to sort of dig a little deeper there. You know, one of the, the things that we kind of consistently talk about is the idea that China is such a big market and such a lure for businesses that it's hard to get them to, to stand up uh, for, you know, America, let alone their own, own profit motive sometimes. So how do you, what do you think will actually tip the scale on that if this hasn't? Because I doubt Microsoft is going to pull out of China just because of this one hack. Well, that's the question, Grant. I don't know. I can't, I can't um, uh, quantify it. I think uh, China does a pretty good job of calculating that th- they can go a certain distance with our corporate citizens and not too far. But I think uh, folks need to stop thinking about their, you know, perhaps their their P&E ratio or their return on investment for the next quarter and start thinking long term here. If we really want to develop the Chinese market as we should, uh, the best way to do that is when is there is, is when there is a democratic representative government in that country that where you can build a sustainable relationship with that market. You just can't do that right now. There is not the rule of law the way we understand it in China. Uh, intellectual property rights are not respected. The courts are a joke. Uh, we, Our corporate citizens need to take a longer term view. How long is it before they get there? It, it, they may have to, it may have to hit them in the pocketbook a little bit harder, but I hope it's coming soon. So, Fred, I want to bring you in here. Uh, You know, your old boss helped push forward some legislation that is seen as the big counter-China legislation. There's also the Endless Frontier Act that's been bopping around both uh, chambers, but both have have kind of stalled in our competition towards towards China. Um, You know, Congress doesn't really ever get spun up on cyber issues. Do you think this will be different at all? Or do, can we expect more of the same coming from the Hill? Well, I could probably answer yes to both of your questions, Grant. I wouldn't necessarily say that, that uh, you know, uh, because once a staffer, always a staffer. I, I would defend the Menendez legislation, which passed the Senate on a pretty bipartisan basis and passed the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, I believe with one dissenting vote, um, uh, which is pretty unheard of uh, in today's times, uh, and that one dissenting vote was Senator Paul. Um, I do agree with you that it is mired in the House right now, and so we'll see what the House can produce, whether it's their own bill or they'll take up uh, the Senate passed bill. I'd love to see uh, a new aggressive posture from Congress. Uh, taking on the state sponsors uh, of significant hacks, whether they be in Moscow or Beijing or, or perhaps uh, in Iran uh, or other places. But, but I think especially in Moscow and Beijing, I think Congress needs to, uh, needs to take a more robust role. And that, by the way, could include opening up the U.S. court system to victims of these hacks right now, uh, whether it's Beijing, Moscow, or others, uh, are protected by the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Perhaps if Congress were to remove that protection, it might give some of these regimes some pause before they direct their next attack at the United States. And then on the other hand, this would not be congressionally directed, but having other U.S. capabilities directed at Moscow or Beijing or other places where if if a country attacks our infrastructure, they should know that they may be met with an equal or more robust attack coming their way. If you want to see examples of that, check with uh, some of our Israeli friends. So uh, for folks following along at home, if you are 
interested in following sort of the the debate around the Foreign Sovereign Sovereign Immunity Act as it relates to uh, cyber. I'd take a look at this bipartisan bill potentially coming out of the House called the Hacked Act that's been introduced by Colin Allred. Um, to, to open up the, the conversation a little bit, you know, as Mike mentioned, this is just one of a number of sort of major cyber attacks that have happened in the, the first six months of this administration. Do you, do you guys think that this is, you know, a result of poor cyber defenses? Are enemies sort of taking advantage and testing a new administration at a low level or something else entirely? Well, I'm happy to jump in, Grant. Uh, I think it's probably a little bit of the things you mentioned and a lot of the fact that uh, countries are developing this capability, knowing it is a fairly consequence-free way uh, to probe and attack the United States. Uh, It's low cost. Uh, We tend to not respond uh, in a very vigorous manner, at least as far as I can tell. I, it's possible I'm wrong on that, and there's just not a lot of information out there about, about how we're responding. But it appears to me that the capability is proliferating among countries, and folks are testing to see if the U.S. will respond. Are we actually going to do anything to fight back? Are we going to strike back? How are we going to organize our allies, as we talked about earlier? Uh, this is definitely testing, but it's, it's not, it doesn't have anything necessarily, I think, to do with Joe Biden himself. This is more, this, this capability has, has grown and spread in recent years. Yeah, I, I agree with Lester. And I would just say others are obviously more expert than than I am here. But I want to mention something that Jamil Jaffer, who is a member of uh, my organization, the uh, Vandenberg Coalition's advisory board, as well as the founder of the National Security Institute, said on this, which is essentially, you know, his argument is that this is a combination of a lack of built up defenses that we have within our institutions, as well as, as Lester mentioned, um, a lack of real deterrence and obvious mechanisms for accountability should we be attacked. So one of the policy proposals that I know he's put forward um, is really that we need to follow an approach that brings multiple organizations to work together across the public and private sector, since many small and medium-sized businesses don't really have the ability or capacity to bring on the security initiatives they need or the personnel that they need to really prevent these attacks going forward. And so as it stands, the majority of these um, uh, hacks are really handled in isolation independently. And his suggestion is that we need to find a way to handle them collectively uh, to to establish a more deterrent effect. Yeah, I think, I mean, this. I agree generally with uh, what Les and Carrie have said. I, I, I don't think this is a sort of um, concerted effort to test the Biden administration. This has been a steady drumbeat of attacks from um, you know, state actors and state affiliated actors in Russia and China um, and, and, and other nations over the past, you know, five, 10 years, it has been steadily increasing and they take every opportunity they can find to steal um, information either from government entities or from uh, corporations that have valuable intellectual property or other secrets that are valuable to the companies or um, to just compile information in mass quantities to figure out uses for later. So I, I don't actually think this is um, uh, this is a change. And, and, I, and I think that you are seeing um, in this administration, if China, if, if the response to the China hack is any indication, you're seeing an emphasis on trying to figure out how to make responses more multilateral, which um, which may or may not work, but I do think is in response to the recognition that there's really only so much we can accomplish unilaterally. Obviously, there are operations um, and other activities taking place behind the scenes uh, through various authorities that, that, that we, are, we are aware of generally, um, uh, but on the sort of legal side, the tools available to us, whether it be sanctions, whether it be indictments, whether it be um, tweaks to foreign policy legislation that's passed, those are going to have limited effect uh, if they're done unilaterally. And so these multilateral efforts, I really do think, provide the, the best shot of trying to uh, take a bite out of uh, the size and scope of these kinds of attacks. Carrie, to try to link our first and and second segments a little bit, you know, one of the things we haven't really focused on is the relationship between China and the Western Hemisphere. Um, How concerned should we be about China's relationships with your old uh, areas of focus, Venezuela and Cuba? 
Well, it really all goes back to what I said about great power competition. What we're seeing is that China, Russia, in some cases, Iran, these are all countries that really are trying to use Cuba and Venezuela to gain a foothold into the Western Hemisphere. In some cases, it's, you know, in the case of Russia, I think it's exclusively because they know it's kind of a way to be a thorn in the side of the United States and they just want to wreak havoc. But when it comes to China, they actually have motivations for being there, um, in particular using their Belt and Road Initiative to try to indebt as many countries as possible to them and then call in those debts um, when they need geopolitical support, whether it's in the UN or elsewhere. So this has been a longstanding initiative by the Chinese government, and it's really an attempt to both weaken the individual countries and their sovereignty as well as to weaken the United States. So this is why, to the extent that we can continue to have a bipartisan focus on China, it's one of these few issues that everybody agrees at this stage is something that needs concerted U.S. attention, then I think we can really um, help ensure that we're retaining our own sovereignty, that other countries are retaining their own sovereignty, and that we're supporting uh, human rights in the region. Now, with respect to Cuba and Venezuela in particular, um, as I mentioned, the Chinese role there, it used to be a little bit of financial support. That's waning a bit now, but we are seeing that a large portion of the surveillance technologies that are being deployed by these regimes have been invented and given by the Chinese government. Um, and so those technologies have been what have allowed these regimes to detain, plant evidence, sometimes even kill members of the opposition in both of those countries. Um, so it's vitally important that we hold them accountable and that when we talk about countering China, we're not just talking about a U.S. pivot towards looking at Asia, because we just need to look at what's going on in the Western Hemisphere to know that the Chinese are not only in Asia, that the Chinese are really trying to um, affect the international security of, um, of, of the world by uh, by getting their feet wet into um, surveillance technologies in, in Cuba and Venezuela. So that really needs to be part of our efforts in countering China. Um, and then there's one other thing that I would just mention here. Um, so there's obviously China's role with surveillance technologies in the hemisphere. There's obviously the aggressive cyber attacks that we spoke about. But there's a third component of China's aggression in the region. And this really has to do with bots on social media. We've seen this with Russia as well. But oftentimes they are trying to foment protests and um, anti-government actions that are not coming from the countries that they're pretending they're coming from. They're actually being um, uh, put forward by the Chinese government. So that's also something that we need to be really carefully paying attention to. And I know the U.S. government is constantly evaluating how many of these protest movements are actually coming from the citizens of that country and how much of it is really being fomented by nefarious actors like Russia and China. So out of the many great points that Carrie uh, just uh, brought to us, I think one of them was that, you know, the, the key here is paying attention and looking at China, not just in Asia, but across uh, the globe. And, you know, I have this feeling that the Biden administration has not been very vocal about their attention towards China. Uh, they've been really focused on the COVID response here in the U.S. They've been focused on infrastructure domestically. Uh, after that shouting match between Secretary Blinken and his Chinese counterparts in Anchorage, it sort of seems like this relationship has gone to ground. Is this quiet approach a better way of working? Does it generate more bipartisanship? Or is it just something that denotes a lack of speed and attention from the administration? Right. If I could jump in here and at the at the risk of being uh, partisan, which uh, which I, I generally try not to be, but sometimes that affects issues in Washington, D.C. I think what you may be seeing as it pertains to China and perhaps Russia and perhaps Turkey uh, and other other countries around the world vis-a-vis U.S. foreign policies, you're seeing a, a re-centered um, priority on human rights, democratic development, et cetera, and less on personality-based relationships or business-based relationships that some have suggested were prevalent in the last administration. So I think you're going to be seeing more of that. uh, And that could cause friction with some of our important foreign policy relationships, whether those are Beijing, Ankara, 
uh, or other places. Yeah, I I would add, you know, I think it's always much more important that an administration is taking action, even if they're not necessarily vocal about it. It certainly does seem from the information that we've been provided, that the public has been provided, that the Biden administration to date has been a little bit more reactive than proactive on these issues. But that being said, you know, going back to Lester's point, I'm someone who served in an administration as well. And so I'm sensitive to the fact that there often is a lot going on behind the scenes that we're not privy to. Um, and so we actually saw this in the Venezuela context recently, where there were Iranian vessels that were coming to Venezuela. A lot of Republicans, including myself, criticized the administration for not really saying much about it. And then shortly thereafter, we saw that those vessels had actually pivoted away thanks to some efforts, diplomatic efforts by the Biden administration. And so that was something that simply wasn't public. It didn't mean that things weren't happening. So I do think that the Biden administration is very much aware that this is a significant issue. It's one of the few issues that they have bipartisan support on, although the nature of how to confront the threat obviously is still to be determined. So I imagine that they're probably doing a lot that we're not seeing at the moment. Um, And I think that's okay. again, as long as that's what's really happening behind the scenes. So, um, Grant, I think that someone from the State Department got your notes from the show and found out you were going to say that they've taken a quiet approach because just as we sat down to record this pod, Wendy Sherman, who Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman, who is in China right now meeting with her foreign counterparts, gave an interview to the New York Times uh, in which she described uh, those meetings with her Chinese counterpart on a wide range of issues, um, including a, a pretty strong statement uh, about the uh, the hack uh, of the Microsoft email uh, systems by the MSS, describing that as absolutely irresponsible, reckless, and having no place in our world. Uh, and then a series of sort of uh, uh, criticisms back and forth uh, from uh, Sherman to her Chinese counterparts over issues ranging from human rights, Taiwan, South China Seas, um, uh, hacking, and more. Um, and, um, it, you know, I think that, um, uh, so, so all joking aside about, um, you know, they're spying on your notes for the show, um, I do think that um, one of the things that uh, the Deputy Secretary says, I think, is emblematic of, of this administration's approach, which is that they're sort of willing to be open about the complexity um, of the relationship rather than sort of describing it in very stark great power competition terms. And the, and the quote, which I, I think is very interesting from, um, from Deputy Secretary Sherman is, the relationship between the United States and the PRC is a complex one. Our policy is very complex as a result. We believe our relationship can tolerate that nuance. Um, that's not exactly the kind of messaging that, you know, sells copy or that fits on a, uh, you know, on a, on a banner on a cable news show. But I think it does reflect um, the administration's efforts to try to balance a set of extremely difficult uh, issues uh, sp- spanning the full range of national security, ep- uh, economic, diplomatic issues uh, that we do have with um, uh, with w- with one of our great rivals uh, and the challenges that this administration is facing um, in gaining ground. Um, but I do think the Chinese are, are uh, at least on a policy level, rhetoric aside, the Chinese are pretty disappointed uh, in uh, what I think that they were expecting out of the Biden administration. I mean, there are many uh, demands that they have made repeatedly uh, to rescind some of the actions from the prior administrations, visa restrictions, sanctions uh, and the like uh, that they haven't seen thus far out of the Biden administration. And so now I'm not sure that um, that the rhetoric uh, change that you have seen from uh, from the Trump administration to the Biden administration has borne itself out yet in major policy shifts. Yeah, Grant, I'll just I'll just uh, kind of piggyback on what Michael said and say China's own actions and words are going to do so much more to encourage our friends and allies to go along with us than any kind of bellicose statement from our own government. And I think kind of uh, working quietly behind the scenes, uh, speaking softly and carrying a big stick letting china dig it's the own it's its own hole that it's going to trip into is probably the more sustainable long-term approach here so i'm cautiously optimistic about the direction this administration's taking i'll just echo both the sentiments of Les, mike and, and i think pretty much everyone on the podcast i think 
um, you know, when the Biden administration has actually had these big meetings, uh, including this uh, Wendy Sherman meeting, which I'm excited to, to read about, they've come out and said pretty strong things about where this relationship needs to go. There was a recent article published by Matt Iglesias uh, about secret Congress, where when the president says something, it often polarizes the issue. Uh, but I think on China, uh, avoiding having a lot of bellicose rhetoric has actually depolarized it and allowed good legislation uh, like the Menendez back legislation actually get through in a much faster and better manner than it maybe did in the previous administration. So with that, let's move to our final topic, which is the issue you're following in the news. Uh, Mike, what are you following this week? So I'm following um what is happening in Tunisia, where yesterday President Kais Syed announced that he was going to fire the prime minister and suspend parliament following a series of uh, massive anti-government protests around the nation. Um, these protests are uh, not unlike some of the ones that we talked about earlier in the show in Cuba um, and elsewhere in the world following rising unemployment, corruption, inadequate government response to coronavirus. Uh, but Tunisia is the only democracy that emerged out of the Arab Spring protests 10 years ago. And the president, uh, who took office in 2019, has been in a power struggle with the prime minister and parliament for some time now um, over the powers that are allocated to different executive branch officials and the parliament under Tunisia's constitution, uh, which was adopted in 2014. And the president has been saying he's intending to expand his authority by doing things like blocking the formation of a constitutional court and the swearing in of ministers, um, and even stripped control over Tunisia's coronavirus response from the health ministry and handed it over to the military in that country. Uh, so this is a particularly tragic development when we look back at the sort of hope and promise that came out of the Arab Spring, uh, which uh, um, have failed to deliver on a meaningful or lasting reform or change to countries around the region. And, you know, let us hope that this latest anti-democratic push uh, fails and that the protesters in Tunisia find uh, a more receptive uh, audience to their concerns uh, than these kinds of changes from the president that we've seen in the last uh, few days. Uh, this week, I'm following uh, the fact that the United States military carried out the first airstrike of the Biden administration in Somalia. Uh, the bombing was against the Al-Shabaab terrorist group, which has been bombing and attacking Somali military bases, as well as civilian spaces such as hotels, bars, and schools in Somalia and across the region. These airstrikes were common in both the Obama and Trump administrations and should be no surprise that they've been resumed. Separately, the military has been carrying out air strikes against the rapidly advancing Taliban in Afghanistan. What this says to me is that Americans don't like the optics of having troops on the ground, but don't actually care that much about forever wars. Moving forward, we should expect more drone strikes, more special, special operations, and more covert action. The problem with this approach is that it has done more for good politics than good policy. Taking out terrorists every now and then may stop the direct threat immediately, but does nothing to change the long-term trends that radicalize populations. So Congress and the media should adjust to this new form of warfare where more is done in the gray zone. Just because it benefits the executive branch to conduct operations in the dark doesn't mean it benefits the country or democracy. Fred, what are you following this week? Thanks, Grant. I'm following the fact that uh, the Senate, at least as it's scheduled right now, is set to be done for the summer at the end of next week while leaving key national security positions without uh, Senate-confirmed um, representatives. That's at the State Department. That's at just about every capital that we have mentioned uh, during this podcast. We don't have a Senate-confirmed ambassador uh, to, uh, to Beijing, to London, to Paris, to Rome, to Ankara. We could go down the list. There are still significant bureaus at the State Department um, that are being led without a Senate-confirmed assistant secretary. Ditto at the Department of Justice, ditto at the Department of Homeland Security, ditto at the Department of Defense. So I'm tracking just how many of these nominees will get through the Senate over the next couple of weeks before uh, the Senate goes on a recess uh, until after Labor Day. The Senate session may uh, 
may go deeper into August than is currently scheduled. And if they do, and I hope they do, it will be because they're trying to get some of these critical nominees into their jobs when they've been vacant now for uh, close to uh, eight months. Carrie, what are you following this week? Sure. Well, first, just to Fred's point, also the, the WHA assistant secretary has not been confirmed in light of all of the changes that we're seeing in the region, whether it's migration, Cuba, Venezuela. So I fully support what, what Fred has said. Um, I am, I guess, not as well-rounded as the rest of the group. My um, The area that I'm tracking still is within the Western Hemisphere, actually still within Cuba, but it's a very specific section here. Um, so a little known fact, at least by Americans, is that in 2016, the European Union had signed something known as a political dialogue and cooperation agreement, also known as the PDCA, um, which sought to re-engage with the Cuban regime on human rights and in exchange to increase trade relations between the EU and Cuba. Now, every country, with the exception of Lithuania, had ratified this agreement and it had been in provisional application since 2017. Um, for a few years, the Spanish and others were trying to convince the Lithuanians to ratify this agreement so that it could be fully applied and so that they knew that there wasn't a threat of this being pulled back. Um, But a few weeks ago, the Lithuanian parliament, which is known as SEMAS, actually voted on a resolution in which they said that ratification of the PDCA at this time would be, quote, politically inappropriate. This was just before um, we saw the protests kick up in Cuba on July 11th. And so, you know, what I'm really watching is what happens next. If we can work with the EU Council to understand that there is no longer consensus within the EU on this agreement, um, to recall the PDCA, and there are provisions to do so, um, in line with what the Lithuanians and the EU Parliament themselves have called for in order to fight for human rights on the island. Um, And so this could be a way to, as Fred mentioned, help make U.S. sanctions more multilateral and would have a significant effect in supporting Cuban calls for freedom uh, if we're able to work with the EU to pull back this agreement. Les, what are you following this week? So, Grant, uh, the issue I am following this week is the career of Grant Haver. Uh, So, Grant, this is your last podcast with us. There's been 90 of them. It's been over two years. You've been fantastic. I, I dare say, I'm not exaggerating at all when I say, if we didn't have you, we would not be here today. You kept it going. You did a terrific job of organizing it, producing it, directing it, getting good people to be on it, uh, suggesting good topics, organizing the research. You hosted it. You co-hosted it. You did a terrific job. Uh, it's been fantastic to work with you uh, these past few years and all of these 90 episodes. Uh, I'm going to miss you personally, uh, seeing you every week, talking to you every week. I wish you the best of luck on the new assignment. We're very proud of you. And uh, so uh, with a kind of heartbroken enthusiasm, uh, it's been terrific. Thanks a lot for everything. Thanks, Les. I I really appreciate it. Um, Just to let folks know, I'm moving on to be a full-time podcast producer. Thanks uh, in part to the joy I've had from working with Les and all of our regulars on this podcast. Uh, You can always find me online at Grant Haver on Twitter, where you'll see some of my newest and latest work. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Will Olson for research assistance, Lester Munson for hosting, and Grant Haver for 90 episodes of producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.